And if you'd turn in your Bibles to James and the third chapter, James chapter 3 this morning. If you're new to Omaha Bible Church, my name's Mike Holloway. I'm one of the assistant pastors here. Uh, Pastor Pat asked me to fill the pulpit for him this morning while he's gone. And it's my privilege to bring the word to you today. We're going to be in James and the third chapter. I'm going to date myself just a little bit here. I've got to, I'm going to start out with a quote from the comic strip Peanuts and its central character, Charlie Brown. I've decided, says Charlie Brown, that life is like an ice cream cone. You have to lick it one day at a time. While that's not a deep philosophical or theological truth, it is nonetheless true. Life is like that. You can't tackle all your problems and troubles at once. You take them lick by lick, day by day. Jesus tells us that each day has enough trouble of its own. It's very practical advice, and the book of James is full of very practical advice about leading the Christian life. I've heard people say, I'm sure you have as well, I don't want doctrine, I want a practical religion. Well, the book of James does just that. It describes a saving faith in Christ Jesus alone that results in good works, that results in obedience. Well, James is the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is a very direct guy. He reminds me of Peter in that way. He says what's on his mind. And so as you read James in our passage today, you sometimes feel like you've been punched in the nose by the blunt and direct approach he takes to truth. It is our tendency in the nature of religion to begin to treat this life as our own, to do what pleases us with our lives. We sometimes use religion to justify demanding our way of controlling those around us, to order life in a way that is pleasing to us. Well, James can make us very uncomfortable as he confronts that in our lives. He gets very personal. He is very direct. He is in your face. The famous playwright, Tennessee Williams, in explaining why he stopped going to his psychologist, reportedly said, he was meddling too much in my private life. Well... James is going to meddle in your private life this morning. The Christian life is not a private life, and James knows that. Our God is a personal God, and he, along with his people, will be involved in our lives with our words, with our time, with our money, our desires, and even our pleasures. The one true God of the Bible is a God who invades our personal space. He does not leave us alone. So before we come to chapter 3, let's track the train of thought in James in the first two chapters. The letter starts with James chapter 1, verse 2, where he says, Count it all joy when you meet various trials. Well, that's kind of an ambiguous statement. Joy in the midst of trials, in the midst of hard things, in the midst of bad times. Yeah. He means it, joy, because he tells us that while trials may be unpleasant, they are ultimately used by God for our good and for his purposes in our lives. He goes on to discuss in the last part of chapter 1 differences in status, in money and the power of those who are in the church, which inevitably leads to a discussion about partiality and prejudice. James deals with our reactions when we are treated unfairly and he deals with our unfairness towards others who are not like us. A key theme of James is how you face trials. How you react in hard times reveals who you really are, where your heart is at a very deep level. It reveals what you are trusting in It reveals your heart. In chapter 2, James tells us 
that those who are really trusting in Christ for eternal salvation, for eternal life, well, that will be displayed in the works we do, in the things we do. He is not saying good works save us, like some balance scale where our good works are on this side and the bad things we do are on this side. No, that doesn't pay the penalty for our sin. Rather, he is saying that saving faith, believing and trusting in Christ alone for our salvation, is a true faith that will result in good works. That will bear good fruit. So now we come to chapter 3. What is the situation? People are talking to one another with and about each other and they are doing so in sinful ways at the beginning of chapter 3. The tongue is described as a small flame that can start an uncontrollable inferno that will hurt and harm others, the testimony of Christ's church, and our individual witness for Him. This sinful talk is but a symptom of what is going on in the soul of these brothers and sisters in Christ. James is now going to jump to the deep end of the pool and deal with what we love and how that affects how we live and how the Lord Himself intervenes in our lives, bringing wisdom grounded in His grace the grace that is ours through the faith we have in Christ Jesus. With that, in con- with that as context, let's read our passage this morning. Follow along with me as I start in James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Well, 
This is human nature 101. This is, this is the introductory class he's giving here. The selfish ambition, the jealousy, the quarrels, the conflicts, the judging of others, and the fighting that is going on in this church and discussed in this passage are displaying the work of our sinful flesh. We come this morning, we sing beautiful hymns, and yet often we go home and we have conflict. We're getting ready for church in the morning. We're getting a little tense. Things are be cut with a knife because people aren't ready and you like to be ready and go on time. Where's that coming from? Why is that? We get defensive. We make a remark. We roll our eyes over something that's said. It is a fierce contradiction that at one moment we bless the Lord with our mouth, sing wonderful hymns, and at the next moment we're saying hurtful things. We're dwelling on what's bothering me about you. Let's take a look at James chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. Probably just a little further up your page. James talks about this contradiction in our lives. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Why is this our reaction in the midst of conflict? Why do we respond this way? Our passage today is concerning our hearts, concerning our sinful flesh, the world of sin around us, the schemes of the evil one, and points us to the right response of living in light of the grace which is ours in our Lord Jesus Christ. I have a four-part outline for you this morning. Point one, the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below. That's chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Number 2, the source of our problem is within us. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. Point number 3, God gives us more grace. Chapter 4, verses 5 to 10. And point number 4, a judgmental spirit indicates idolatry. Verses 11 and 12. It's amazing how much of this letter is given to our speech. That reinforces for us that our speech is not primarily given for our own expression, for expressing ourselves, but rather our speech is given for expressing God's character, for promoting the glory of God in the things that we say. Because as good Christians, the things we say should flow from a heart. And as those who have placed their faith in Christ, we have a new heart. We are new creatures in Christ. The fruit that we bear should exemplify and display Jesus Christ. So point one, the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below. Verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, by his good behavior, let him show his works in the meekness or gentleness of wisdom. Well, what is wisdom itself? Wisdom has been called godly living. I like the definition that's in the ESV study Bible, if you have one of those. It says wisdom is God-given and God-centered discernment regarding the practical issues of life. Proverbs is the great book of wisdom. Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Two ideas here in verse 13. First of all, wisdom produces good works. Wisdom produces good behavior. Secondly, wisdom is be to be characterized by humility, by meekness by gentleness. Our Lord said, Take my yoke upon you and learn for me, 
For I am gentle. There's our word. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus pronounced a blessing on those who are meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Those who are humble and meek before God. So this is wisdom. Wisdom is righteous living, taking the word of God and turning it into the way we live our life in a way that is pleasing to our Lord. Verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Do not be arrogant and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Bitter jealousy, literally, it is bad zeal. Zeal that is misdirected in the wrong direction. Now, jealousy itself is not always a bad thing. It's appropriate that I be jealous for my wife if she's being pursued by another. It's appropriate that I be jealous for the welfare of my children if they're being threatened. That's a sign that they belong to me, that they are a part of my family. But that's not the kind of jealousy that's being talked about here. This is a jealousy that is motivated by selfishness, results in envy and criticism and bad-mouthing others. It is sin. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are always sin. They come from an arrogant attitude, from a heart that is not turned towards Christ, but is turns toward the things of this world. It is opposed to the truth of God. The Greek word used for selfish ambition is used to describe narrow-minded, highly partisan, and factious politicians. Yes, they even had them back in New Testament times. They are out for their own ends. They are not out for the good of the country. They are not out for the good of the people. So too, with those in the church, they are out for themselves. They pride themselves on their great knowledge, their insight, their understanding, their wisdom. In this section, James is contrasting the wisdom, or foolishness if you prefer, the wisdom of these jealous and contentious people. See, true wisdom, as Scripture makes plain, comes only from God. This wisdom has a number of sources. James 1.5 says we get the wisdom from God by asking Him for it. It is a wisdom that has its origin and nature in God Himself, this godly wisdom. The contrast is with the wisdom that produces jealousy and selfishness. There are three words that are used to describe it. In verse 15, at the very end, it says that it is earthly, it is unspiritual, and it is demonic. The word earthly, Paul uses earthly to describe the enemies of the cross of Christ in Philippians 3, verse 19 He writes, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame, their minds are set on earthly things. Their mind is set on the things of this world, not on the things of God. The word unspiritual is derived from the Greek word psyche. It's where we get psychology from. Psychology, the word that we often talk about our soul. It's about me. It's about who I am on the inside. So one of these three components of this wisdom that is from below is my sinful flesh. Another one, the earthly one, is about the world around me and all the sin that is around us in this world, the temptations of this world. And then the last one is demonic. More literally, 
It is wisdom pertaining to demons. James is not ignoring that there is a spiritual dimension to this bad and ugly behavior that we exhibit. It is being used by the evil one in a crafty way by our adversary to corrupt us. These three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil is what is in view here. It is the direct opposite of the wisdom that comes from above. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, it always leads to evil. It leads to personal conflict. You see, selfish ambition is about the self-exalting quality of sin. My agenda becomes supreme. I am high and mighty. What I want befits a very, very important person, and you better pay attention to me. In the midst of this attitude, what do you find? The end of verse 16. Disorder and every vile practice. Every evil. When we trust in and rely on the wisdom of this world or the wisdom of our own flesh, It is used very craftily by the evil one and his demons to turn our focus from Christ and the wisdom that is ours through him. Disorder, confusion, vile and evil conduct breaks out. When Christians are more interested in pursuing their own ambitions or personal causes than in building up one another in Christ for the sake of the gospel, you end up with every vile practice imaginable breaking out. What is every vile practice? It's the result of a self-focus. There are 10,000 and more manifestations of this wickedness that is contrary to the forgiveness we have in Christ. It is contrary to the love Christ has shown us through the gospel. And it denies the gospel's power to change lives and produce Christ-likeness in us. Verse 17 But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest is sown in peace by those who make peace. Here are the effects of living in light of divine wisdom and what it produces. He identifies seven of them. The first and most prominent is purity. Divine wisdom is pure. It is free from any stain or blemish and would be incapable of producing evil. Notice the next one, peaceable. Very appropriate. Because if earthly and unspiritual and demonic wisdom produces evil and conflict, godly wisdom produces peace. This list almost reminds me of Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Now, I don't want to make the comparison too directly because the Scripture doesn't. But godly wisdom leads to peace, not to conflict, not to evil. Godly wisdom brings a harvest of peace, reaping of peace, In a society and culture that tends to elevate intelligence, knowledge, power, these seven things are the values and virtues that are truly the enduring ones. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Sons of God. Point number two. The source of our problem is within us, verses 1 to 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Or what is the source of quarrels and the source of fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, your pleasures are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. 
You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, your own pleasures. Why do we do this? Why am I angry when I don't get what I want? James says it's because of my pleasures. It's because I'm not getting what pleases me. I'm not getting what I want in terms of either possessions or honor or respect or obedience. Often there is conflict in relationships with others because I want you to do what I want you to do. I want you to stop doing something or I want you to start doing something. When we were small, I wanted your toy or your candy bar. As I got a little older, I wanted your boyfriend or your girlfriend. As an adult, I want your car, I want your house, I want your power, I want your prestige, I want your respect. I want something that you've got, and I don't have it. Desire is talked about here. Desire and lust, not in the sense of a, a, a sexual lust or a sexual desire, but in the sense that I really want something. I've got to have something. Okay. I've been infected by this. You ever fall in love with a car? Got to have the car, right? I love that car. My car works fine, but I need a better car. Okay. And this one gets, you know, three miles better per gallon. It's only going to cost me $10,000 more than the car I currently have. I can buy a lot of gas for three cents more per gallon, but that's a great rationalization, isn't it? I want that thing. I love that thing. People put themselves in financial ruin because they want that thing. We're the same way with other things, not just with cars, with houses, with homes. Or pick whatever it is that trips your trigger. Because it runs the gamut. And James uses language here of physical conflict, of battles, of violence that we do to one another in verbal assaults. Now, nobody is murdering anybody here in reality. But it's the idea of doing violence to one another in the things that we say and do. We get angry. Now, the ultimate end of anger is violence. Where does that anger that's expressed outwardly start? Well, it starts in our minds, right? You think about it before you do it. You catch yourself sometimes. Sometimes it just comes out, right? It's out before you almost know it. And you don't sit back and go, gosh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to try to be idolatrous today and go around and, and really, you know, um, worship anything other than God by the things that I say. We never do that. It's not the way it works. It just comes out, comes out of our heart. It is in the midst of conflict, in the heat of the battle, when words are flying fast, when the instincts of our flesh come out most clearly and what we hold most dear, what we love, what we desire, what we crave, what we lust for at that moment in time, comes to the forefront. And when we run to our pride and our selfishness, when we want to make ourselves the biggest person in the room, when we want to erase God from our mind and get Him away from us as far as we can and not think about Him, that's when we start trusting in a worldly, fleshly, and demonic wisdom. Our heart is feeding on a gospel counterfeit at that moment not on the wisdom that is ours in Christ. In those moments, we are plagued with gospel amnesia. We don't have our focus on Christ. We have it on ourselves or on that thing, whatever that reason might be. We forget the gospel. We don't remember the cross. We don't listen to the voice of Christ. Rather, we listen to the voice of the world or to our sinful flesh. 
or to the voice of the evil one, most likely some stew, some combination of all three, that's whispering in our ears the things we long to hear. James is saying frustrated desire, growing out of a root that follows the world, leads to violence against one another, violence that can escalate from verbal to physical to the ultimate violence of murder. Human conflict is boiled down for us here. Whether it is verbal arguments, physical altercations, conflict between nations, then source and cause of all of them is a frustrated desire that wants more than we have, that is discontent with what God has given us, that envisions or is envious of and covets what others have. Simply put, our problem is our sin. When things are not right in our relationships or in our world, it traces back to sin. You would think that this strong statement, James, would be done. You would think he's pretty much exhausted this. No, he's going to dwell here just a little longer. Verse 4, you adulterous people. Now he's talking to believers here. Fifteen times in the letter of James, he says, brother, 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 brother. You see it in the passage that we just saw in verse 11. You saw it back in chapter 3, verse 9. Brother brother, brother, you adulterous people. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes or whoever chooses to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You adulteresses is a very vigorous metaphor grounded in the Old Testament. When Israel would rebel against God, when they would worship the Baal and the Asherah and the false gods of the nations surrounding them, God said, you are faithless. You are cheating on me with other gods, you adulterous people Israel. And now James applies this to this group of brothers and sisters. This is the love that God hates. It is the love of self. It is the love of the world in the worst sense of the words. It is religious bigamy. Cheating on God by being deeply influenced by the world. It is a misplaced friendship. We want to be liked. We want to be in control. We want everybody to think we're great. And so we bow before the gods of this world. You adulteresses. Well, God doesn't leave us here. James doesn't leave us here. Point three, God gives us grace to draw near to him. Verse five. Or do you suppose, do you think, it is to no purpose, without reason, that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has caused or made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. What does God do to meet our need? He gives more grace. He does not leave us without a source of rescue. The rescue is God's overflowing abundance of grace. God gives more grace. More than what? More than our problems. More than whatever your problem, whatever your trial, whatever your suffering is, God gives more grace. Quite honestly, it's like you dipping a cup of grace out of an ocean of grace. It overflows with the grace that is ours through Jesus Christ. He is calling us to Himself. And as you will see in a moment, He is calling us to repentance. He is calling us to change. 
He is calling us to humble ourselves before God and trust in Christ. James has a pastor's heart here. He throws the atomic bomb of grace onto our problems, onto our behaviors, onto what we do. He doesn't give a list of don't, 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 do, do, do. He says you need God's grace. You need to understand God's grace. You need to dwell in God's grace. You need to kneel at the foot of the cross. That's what you need. Now, James is blunt and to the point, right? And he's going to give us four verses, five verses here of grace before he comes back to a little little warning for us. Now, if this was Paul, okay, at this point, Paul would launch into three or four chapters, not three or four verses on grace. He would start laying it all out for us about the gospel of Christ, how it impacts our life, what Christ has done for us. How we should depend upon Him. So let's take a look at what Paul says. Turn to Titus chapter 2. Just a few pages towards the front of your Bible. Past the book of Hebrews to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2. What is this grace? Where does it come from? Titus 2, verse 11. We often think of the grace of God as something we draw upon at the moment of salvation when when we are saved, right? This grace not only saves, this gospel not only saves us for eternal life, it sanctifies us, it grows us in the Lord, and it gives us an example of how to live. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. There's the salvation part. Here comes the sanctification part, the growing in Christ-likeness. For the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, this grace, this gospel, leads us to zealousness for good works But when we turn to worldly wisdom, to the wisdom from below, that leads us to zealousness for selfishness and jealousy and bad and evil things. The grace of God that He has so wonderfully and marvelously made available to us is grounded in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Turn back to James chapter 4. Now James is going to give us a list of ten commands that are all possible because of this grace that he has poured out upon us. Because God has given us more grace, verse 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Humble yourself before Him. It's not the idea of God's giving orders, now you go do it. It's the idea of bowing before Him. It's the idea of humbling yourself before Him. As a matter of fact, the end of verse 6, God opposes the proud. There's that pride thing again. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's that humble word again. Humble yourself before God. Submit yourself to Him. Put yourself under His authority. And when you do that, verse 7 tells us, you will be resisting the devil. 
and he will flee from you. Verse 8. Because of this grace, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. Old Testament word again. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, the externals, your behavior, can be clean, can be acceptable to God because of His grace. Your heart will be purified because of His grace. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. I would suggest this this answer to our problems is totally different than the one that the world brings to bear on conflict, on sufferings, on trials. This answer of grace is so different. This transaction with God that allows us, that empowers us to live in obedience to Him is different than the world's answer. What's the world's answer? I suggest you go to the bookstore. Yes, there is still bookstores. Go to Barnes & Noble. Go to the self-help section. Start looking at all the books. Not one of them says the way to get help is a transaction with the living God. They will give you lots of do's and don'ts. They will give you 5 or 10 or 20 principles for restoring, restoring your broken relationships, your relationships with your wife or your husband, your kids. They'll give you lots of advice on changing the way you interact with your coworkers, your friends, your family. But in doing so, they completely underestimate the power of sin in our lives to give birth to a distorted worship of anything and everything but God. That's why moralism doesn't work. That's why it fails miserably. It doesn't address the fact that God is the creator and that we are sinners against Him. And it results in a distorted view of love, a distorted focus on ourselves, You see, love of God, trusting in Christ, the power of the gospel, the outpouring of grace in our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit is not in that vocabulary. That's worldly wisdom. It's the way the world does it. And they almost surely will tell you to start building up your own self-esteem so you can love yourself even more than you already do. But what does God say we must do? Verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. He will lift you up. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to turn from the worldly, earthly, demonic things we're trusting in and to trust in the one true God. What are the consequences of resting in God's grace? He will exalt you. He will lift you up. You see, the way up starts with humility. It starts with bowing down the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God. Point four, a judgmental spirit indicates idolatry. Just in case you haven't gotten the point by now, just in case the two-by-fours up the side of your head haven't gotten through, he's going to hit you one more time. Because he's serious about this, and he expects us to take it seriously. Verse 11 Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. 
There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Essentially, he's asking the question, who do you think you are when you talk this way? Who do you think you are? Well, clearly, you think you're God. You think you're the lawgiver. You think you're the judge. You think you're the one on the throne. You think it's my will be done if your behavior exhibits, your speech exhibits this character. It is a character that has a critical spirit and a judgmental spirit to it. I've struggled with this over the years. God's been dealing with me in this passage over the last six months. Pick, 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 pick. I'm always right. Everybody's always wrong. I've had to repent of it. I've had to ask God's forgiveness for it. Because I have a critical spirit. Now, God is not saying here that we are never to exercise judgment. Jesus says we're not to throw our pearls before swine. Well, you have to understand who the swine are. You have to make a judgment to know that. Paul said to beware of the dogs of the evildoers. Well, you have to exercise judgment there too. He tells the Corinthian church they are to exercise church discipline in the case of an incestuous relationship going on among their members in line with the words of Christ in Matthew 18. Certainly there was judgment happening there discernment. The Berean church in Acts is commended for exercising discernment, another word for judgment, regarding the teaching of the scriptures in their midst. But that's not the kind of judging James is talking about. He's talking about those who were always critical of others. They always have a better way. They always know how somebody should have done something. They have an arrogant attitude. It's rooted in self-centeredness. They judge others constantly, and they make sure everybody's aware of their verdict. They have to be heard. So they talk about it. It is the actions of one who wants to usurp the seat that belongs to only God. It is consistent with the adulterous label of verse 4, yet it is even more serious. For this is not just a worship of another. It is throwing the judge off the bench and installing myself in his place. God will not put up with any rivals. Rebels and pretenders to the throne will be judged, will be held accountable. God is the judge. He is the one who gets the last say. Only God does this. We do not have authority. Only He does. What you say about God has much to say about what He says about you. Much of our relationship with God is shown in our relationships with others. My primary obligation in this life as a Christian is not to myself and not to my own agenda. It is to God and to the body of Christ. You and I must realize our selfishness hurts other people and God will hold us accountable for it. We are to use ourselves for others out of a love for Christ It is a huge loss of perspective and a lack of love for Christ and his body when I speak in ways that tear down and don't build one another up. What does it say about Christ if we think and talk this way? Well, Christ calls us to live our lives, calls us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, to live in light of the wisdom that he has given us and that he is grounded in his wonderful grace. May we be a people that seek his face in these things. Let's pray. Almighty God,
These are tough words. These are tough things. I pray, Father, we would humble ourselves before you. That we would come before you in repentance. That we would see ourselves as wretched. That we would mourn and weep over our sin. But, Father, we take great encouragement. There is hope in the gospel, in the grace that you pour out upon us through your Son, Jesus Christ. May we avail ourselves of that. For, Lord, we know that we will not be perfect. We will not be holy in this life, even though we are your children and even though you have redeemed us, even though you promise us everlasting life in your Son. You tell us that you have us by the hand. You won't let us go. Lord, you are the vine dresser. You are pruning us so that we might produce more fruit. We take great comfort in that. We look forward to the day, Father, when you will exalt us, when you will lift us up, when we will be with you in glory, the hope of our salvation. You are a great God. We do not want to put ourselves in your place. We must not. So in our relationships, help us remember Jesus Christ. Let us not forget that you give more grace, that your grace is all-sufficient, that it is an ocean of grace outpouring upon us in such a fashion that it is always available to us. Even, Father, when people say things against us, when they slander us, I pray, Lord, we would not return evil for evil, but that we would remember that you are the judge and that you have called us to bring the grace of the gospel with our mouths to those people as well. Give us tongues that speak blessings and not curses. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, I pray.